We're grateful, Lord, that we are not meeting tonight to study the Koran. I, I really mean that. There are people who are doing that. Many of them yeah, very, very sincere. You have been so good to us to give us your word and to not only give us your word, but to open our blind eyes. Uh, Satan had blinded our eyes so that we might not see the truth of the gospel. But you drew us to yourself. You opened our eyes. And we would ask you, as the psalmist did in 119, we would say, uh, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your law. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you that it's two-edged. It cuts going in, it cuts going out. We thank you for the power that is in your word uh, to change us, to encourage us, to rebuke us. We, we thank you that it is a true word. In that same Psalm 119, he said, the sum of your word is truth. Add it all up. What does it come out to? It comes out to truth. So it's a trustworthy word. We're, we're thankful, Lord, for truth. We thank, we're thankful for your word. We're, we're, we're thankful that, that, that it has the ability to sustain us, that it encourages us. We, we thank you for the promises. And there are times we forget the promises. There are times when we wonder if indeed the promises are still active. There are times when we wonder if the promises really apply to our situation. They do, and we count on them. We live off them. Uh, some of us need to be reminded of what you've promised. We come from uh, a bunch of different circumstances today different places, different places around town. Some guys had good days, some guys not so good days. But we come uh, to open your word. Uh, we would pray that the word might open us up. There are areas in our lives that it needs to penetrate, needs to speak to our hearts. We don't want to be obstinate. We don't want to be difficult men. We don't want to be blind. We all have our blind spots. We ask tonight that you might uh, shine the light in an area that we haven't seen before, but that we need to see. We, we, simply, <coughs> we simply ask you, <coughs> we simply ask you, Lord, to use your word as a scalpel tonight uh, to accomplish good health in our lives. That might mean that you got to open us up a little bit and take something out. But at the same time, Lord, you always deposit truth in our hearts when we open the pages of Scripture. So would you do that for us tonight? Would you encourage us? Let us know that you're with us. There are guys here tonight, Lord, they're, they're going through deep, deep crisis and deep water. Let them know that you're with them. Let them know that your eye is upon them.
Let them know that you know exactly what's going on. And you'll make a way. You'll make provision. That's your promise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Titus is that uh, small, obscure book that is power-packed. And I'd invite you to turn there with me. There was a phrase that uh, I used to hear a lot when I was a kid. I don't hear it much anymore. The, uh, you're probably familiar with this phrase. Uh, the phrase is uh, God-fearing man. Remember that phrase? That's a good phrase. For a man to be called a God-fearing man was a real compliment. I haven't heard that in a while. But uh, I think it kind of sums up what Paul is writing to Titus about in this particular section of Scripture. Uh, Titus is in Crete. Paul had been there, established a church, as was his uh, habit. Paul was not a pastor. He was an apostle. He was a sent-out one. He'd go out on his different journeys. He'd establish churches, and then he'd take off to the next town. So what he is saying to Titus is, and we saw last week, we found out some things about Titus that most of us weren't aware of because he's not someone we're real familiar with, but you get snapshots of Titus throughout different areas of the New Testament, particularly in 2 Corinthians, and we saw what a valued man he was in Paul's life. He was a son, spiritually, he was a brother, he was a fellow partner, he was a fellow draft horse, and he's, he's been left there to, to set in order on the island of Crete that which remains. In other words, Paul got it going, but I've got to go to the next town, I need you to get things straight. So that's what he's going to do. And it's essential that he finds some men to help him. Uh, now the kind of men that basically Paul is going to suggest to him to find, to help him set things in order. I think, in a nutshell, you could say, Paul's saying, uh, Titus, I need you to find some God-fearing men. That's what I need. Uh, Whenever you find a God-fearing man, you've got a leader. That's what you've got as a leader. And, And what was needed in this church was they needed some leaders because they were surrounded by a bunch of losers. If you'll notice Titus chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, why does he need to set it in order and get the right kind of men in the leadership position of this church? Why is this so critical? Why does he need a certain kind of leader? Well, because Crete was a bad news area full of false teachers, full of false doctrine, full of men that said one thing and lived another. They were surrounded, uh, quite frankly, by losers. So you need leaders because we're surrounded by losers. Jump down to verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. you got Jewish teachers that are causing all kinds of problems here who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. 
What's that about? Well, the early church met in homes. And, I mean, you know, they didn't have buildings like this, so they'd meet in homes. And, and when you got a false teacher, he's going to mess up a whole family that's sitting under his teaching. Teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. These guys are in it for the money. These guys are in it for the bucks. That's still with us today, isn't it? Sure it is. Uh, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, Paul says. Now, that's the culture that, that Titus is in. How does that go again? Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says this testimony is harsh. He didn't say that. He says this testimony is judgmental. He doesn't say that. He says this testimony is true. That was the reputation of the Cretans. Um, Barclay, in his little commentary, has some good historical background on, uh, on the people on the island of Crete. He says, no people ever had a worse reputation in the ancient world than the Cretans. The ancient world spoke of the three most evil seas, the Cretans, the Cilicians, and the Cappadocians. The Cretans were famed as a drunken, insolent, untrustworthy, lying, gluttonous people. Sort of like a everyday Super Bowl kind of thing. You know, just there for a good time. Did you read that article in the Wall Street Journal about all the people that go to the Super Bowl but they don't stay for the game? Did you see that this week? It really surprised me. And they talked about how many jets fly in the Phoenix and Sky Harbor and Scottsdale for this Super Bowl thing. And then they talked about how many left before the game ever started. They're just in there for the week before. Because the parties are just unbelievable. I, I just found that really fascinating. I mentioned this, but um, Barclay goes into it. So notorious were the Cretans that the Greeks actually formed a, a verb to cretize, which meant to lie and to cheat. They had their own synonym. That's how bad these guys were. And they had a proverbial phrase... Cretazane pros creta to cretize against a Cretan, which meant to match lies with lies as diamonds cut diamonds. The quotation which Paul makes where he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That quotation is actually from a Greek poet called Epimenides. He lived about 600 BC and was ranked as one of the seven wise men of Greece. It was a common saying that originated with this guy, and Paul just says, yeah, that's true. That's who I've left you to uh, minister to. This wasn't the Bible Belt. This isn't Tyler, Texas. This isn't Shreveport, Louisiana. This isn't Asheville, North Carolina. So it's not an easy assignment. Uh, notice what he says about these guys. You see, basically, these guys are a bunch of losers. That's why it's so critical that Titus appoint the right kind of leaders. He goes on and he says, uh, this testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Do you remember, uh, the, do you remember the game show Hollywood Squares? Yeah. There used to be a guy that sat in the middle square. Uh, Charlie Weaver was to the left. 
Paul Lind. Paul Lind. Paul Lind could take anything and make it dirty. Could he not? They, they would ask him a question, and he'd get that, <laughs> he'd get that little smirk, and he'd just turn it, because that's how his mind worked. Uh, what Paul says is true. To the pure, all things are pure. Yeah, so you, can, you can make a statement that's innocuous, and some guy at work can just start laughing because he takes it in an impure way. You ever have that, you ever have that happen? Sure you do. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Now watch this. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So this is the setting. This is what they're surrounded by. This is why Timothy, this is why Titus was going to have to find some God-fearing men. Now, where does that phrase come from? He's a God-fearing man. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the phrase that you find in the Scripture, the fear of the Lord. Uh, the fear of the Lord is found 14 times in the book of Proverbs. It's just, as you go through Proverbs, you find it here, you find it there, you find it over there. In uh, Proverbs 9, verse 10, we find the famous statement that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of wisdom in 9.10. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge is in Proverbs 1, verse 7. Let's flip over there. If, if you're a God-fearing man, right off the bat, we find out two things. If you're a God-fearing man, you've got wisdom. So you're not going to live like the Cretans. If you're a God-fearing man, you're going to live according to to knowledge, to that which is really true, to that which is really real in life. Um, Proverbs 1 is interesting because in, in talking about the fear of the Lord, right out of the blocks in Proverbs, uh, Solomon's writing, and, and throughout Proverbs, what you've got is a father writing to his son, and he's, and he's trying to instruct him in wisdom. So if uh, you notice... Um, Proverbs 1, 8. Now, let's look at 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Those were the Cretans. They despise wisdom and instruction. They despise it. That's what Titus is up against. Notice what uh, Solomon says in 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Why? Because he wants to give him wisdom so he won't be a fool. Look at verse 10. My son of sinners entice you. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My son... All the way through, He's, it says, Father talking to a son. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hero sons, the instruction of a father. What's Proverbs about? It's a father trying to give wisdom to a son so he won't be foolish. One of the things that happens in, uh, uh, in Proverbs is that Right out of the blocks, he's talking about wisdom, and he personifies wisdom. He speaks of wisdom as though it's an individual. Look at um, Proverbs one twenty. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. Who cries out? Wisdom does. At the, in, at the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. 
wisdom is saying, Behold, I'll pour out my spirit on you. I'll make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused. Refused what? Refused wisdom. You didn't want it. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. You neglected all my counsel. Uh, You did not want my reproof. Well, I will also laugh at your calamity. You want to be a fool? You're going to wind up in terrible circumstances. I will mock when your dread comes, when your dread comes like a storm. Uh, The end of 27, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Watch this, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Kind of describes our nation right now. We're not much interested in the fear of the Lord. Don't hear a lot of talk about God-fearing men. If we do, it's... It's a mocking statement, you see. What is it about the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You're a God-fearing man. And what's wisdom? We've talked about this before. Wisdom is another way, I think, of expressing uh, what we call common sense. I mean, you think about the men in your life that you think are wise, you know what? They know how to live life. They're, they're, not, they're, they're not up in the clouds somewhere. They're not just dreamers. They, they get their feet on the ground. And you talk with them, and you get their input. Why? Because they've got common sense. They know how to live life because they've got wisdom. Where does that come from? The fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord's beginning of knowledge. Psalm... Uh, uh, 19. I, I love this one. Look at Psalm 19. There's something else about the fear of the Lord. Psalm 19, verse 9, says, The fear of the Lord is clean. It's clean. I like that. So you got this screwed up little island. And they're trying to get this church going. So what kind of guy does he need to find? And not just one guy. He needs to find some guys that are God-fearing men. Now, now here's the deal. So, so Titus, I want you to find these guys and appoint them as elders. All right, well, who do I look for? Well, he gives him a list. He gives him a laundry list of qualifications to look for in the lives of these men that he's going to appoint to leadership in the church. This reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Uh, Didn't matter if they're male, didn't matter if they're female. He just wanted him to put good leaders into place. Thought I'd get some reaction on that. I didn't get any. Did it matter if they were males or females? It did matter. Now, the real hip and cool thing today is to say, oh, no, it doesn't matter. We're very open-minded. You know, there's some things you don't want to be open-minded to. What what does the Scripture say? He says, uh, I want you to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Uh, You know, in Greek, there are masculine pronouns, there are feminine pronouns, and there are neuter pronouns. Greek is very exact. Um, 
It's all masculine. Why is that? Because God wants his church to be led by men. doesn't mean that women don't have leadership abilities or gifts, but God wants men to lead the church. This is what God has said. Just how it works. So it's masculine. It's masculine. Just thought I'd underscore that. Because God wants men to lead the church. When all else fails, read the directions. The other thing I'd point out to you, the other thing I'd point out to you is that all of these, because we're gonna, he's going to give us a list of character qualifications here. Because it's all about character. They're all in the present tense. That's important. All of these qualifications are present tense. Um, and let's read them. I want you to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered. You see the character here? Not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. You see the character traits? He says, Titus, I want you to look for guys that have got this, this, this in their life. These are all in the present tense. You say, what do you mean they're all in the present tense? Well, if they were in the past tense, nobody could be appointed. That's the point. It's a great passage over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, I, I, I really like this one. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9. Paul's writing to the church and he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. That means effeminate by perversion. They have chosen to depart from masculinity and to become like a woman. Okay. Nor the effeminate by perversion, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And someone would listen to that and say, well, that's the church being judgmental. There is the intolerance of Christianity. Yeah, sounds pretty normal for today, doesn't it? Look at verse 10. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, uh, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Do you see why I say over in Titus, he says, I want you to look for men to appoint as elders who have these characteristics, these character qualifications in their life, and they're all in the present tense because we all used to be screwed up before Christ came into our lives. I've told you the story of what Ray Steadman did one time at Peninsula Bible Church in California. Ray was preaching on this passage on a Sunday morning. There's about 1,000 people there in the service, and Ray is teaching this, and he reads the list. Um, uh, neither fornicators, idolaters, nor adulterers, or feminine, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, covetous, drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. He read that list and he looked out the congregation. And he said, uh, if, uh, if you fit that category, if that describes you in your past life, would you stand? People just kind of looked at him. And he said, please, would you stand? Would you look at the list again? And he read over it. He said, if that applies to you, 
would you stand? And one guy over here stood up. And then another guy stood. And, then so, and in about 45 seconds, you had everybody in the building standing up. Is that not true? Because everybody in here fits somewhere in that list, right? That's what we used to be. That's our old way of living. Well, what happened? Why don't we live that way anymore? Christ came into our lives. If any man in Christ, any man is in Christ, he is a, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what you used to do. It's not what you do anymore. Now, are you free from temptation? No. But it's not how you categorize your life. And, and what's happened is Christ has come into your life. You've been born. You have been birthed. And now you're in the process. You're in the process of growing. These, uh, th- this, this list of qualifications in Titus can be a little bit intimidating. But the point that is being made, he says, hey, Titus, I want you to find some guys that are growing. I want you to find some guys, Cretan guys, and Christ has changed their lives. Yeah, they used to be liars. They used to be swindlers. They used to be all that stuff. But Christ came into their lives, gave them a new heart, and these guys are on a growth curve that's moving rapidly. J.C. Ryle writes these words in his book, Holiness. He says, One principal ground on which I build this doctrine of growth and grace what he's talking about in this chapter, is the plain language of Scripture. If words in the Bible mean anything, there is such a thing as growth, and believers ought to be exhorted to grow. What says St. Paul? He says, your faith grows exceedingly, 2 Thessalonians 1.3. Paul says, we beseech you that you increase more and more, 1 Thessalonians 4.10. Increasing in the knowledge of God is Colossians 1, verse 10. Having hope when your faith is increased, when your faith grows, 2 Corinthians 10, 15. The Lord make you to increase in love. Can you become more loving? Yeah, you grow. 1 Thessalonians three twelve, That you may grow up into him in all things. That's interesting. And it gives me a lot of hope. That you may grow up into him in all things. In every area of my life, I can experience growth in Christ. It's Ephesians 4.15. I pray that your love may abound more and more. Philippians 1.9. We beseech you as we received, as you have received of us how we ought to walk and please God, so you would abound more and more. Yet you'd continue to walk. you continue to mature. What does St. Peter say? Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. 1 Peter 2.2, 2. grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. The goal is just not to come to Christ and have our sins forgiven. That's, not, that, that's called justification, but there's something called sanctification. And sanctification is once we have uh, come to Christ and once our sins have been forgiven, we, by faith, embrace Christ and trust in him alone he comes into our lives. Now, does it just stop there and great, I'm going to heaven? Or not? No, 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 no. So you've been birthed, now you're going to grow. Sanctification is being set apart, 
that you might grow up in all things, that, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. So he's saying to Titus, he says, Titus, I want you to find some guys. I need you to appoint elders in every city. Guys who are growing, guys, guys who are maturing, guys who used to be like this and this and this, but they're not like that anymore. They're growing up. They, they, and why are they growing? Because they're God-fearing men. You see, he comes into our lives, he changes us, gives us a desire for his word, gives us a desire to please him, to please him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. We, we fight that battle every day, don't we? Every cotton-picking day, we fight the battle to seek him first because we are constantly being told and we are constantly being dictated to that there's something else that we must seek first. You seek him first. You seek him first and you're going to be growing. You seek him first and you're going to be developing. That's why it's such a great idea to start your day in Scripture. It's your morning briefing. You check in with the truth. You check in with your Lord. You get your bearings. You get your wheel. You ever just wake up in the morning kind of down? Ever happened to you? Well, what do you do? What, 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 what is, uh, what's the solution to that? You just kind of feel down. You're not even sure why. I grab your Bible. It's a good idea to grab your Bible first in the morning. I think it's a better idea to grab that than the Dallas Morning News. I mean, personally. I mean, I'm not telling you what you ought to do, but I'd rather read truth first. Wouldn't you? I'd rather read truth before I read the Wall Street Journal. I'd rather read truth before I read the National Enquirer. That was kind of a joke, but you, you didn't laugh. <laughs> Why not start with the Word of God? You see? Now, now so, so you see the process. See, the, the, these, these character qualifications, once again, can be a little bit intimidating. But I want you to find, hey, hey, Titus, I want you to find some guys that are growing. Now, he breaks down, he breaks down this list into three basic areas. The first area that he deals with is a man's family. He says, I want you to see if a man is qualified when you examine his family. That's really important. Then secondly, I want you to see if a man is qualified personally. Personally. I remember one Sunday morning, I don't know how long ago it was, but they were appointing some new elders. I remember Chuck saying, uh, uh, introducing a couple guys. These are men that we are going to appoint as elders. We're not going to do it immediately. We would like your input. If you know of any biblical reason why these men are not qualified, we would like you to contact us. If you know, if you know anything we don't know, we need to hear from you. Because we don't want to put men into this position who do not have the character qualifications. So first it's their family. Then it's their personal life. Then thirdly, 
It's, it's their doctrinal beliefs. What do they believe? There's got to be a certain area of development, as we'll see in a minute. Now, the first thing he says back in Titus, first thing he says in Titus is this. He says, um, let me get back to Titus. The first thing out of the blocks he says in verse 6, he says, namely, if any man is above reproach. That is sort of the, the umbrella statement. It's sort of the arch over the whole thing. The, the idea is, uh, when he says, I, I want you to appoint elders in every city, namely, if any man is above reproach, the idea is, uh, it, it, it's, it's good reputation. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a guy whose life is without indictment. It's a guy, it doesn't mean that a guy is without sin. But I, I, one way I'd put it is, it's a guy that you don't have to worry about Mike Wallace and a camera crew walking into his office. Now, Mike Wallace might walk into your office and pull out some papers from 15 years ago and indict you. But a mature man, if in, and, and we've all got stuff in our past, but the question would be, um, did you take care of it? Did you handle it? Uh, did you make restitution years ago? Uh, yeah, I said that. I shouldn't have said it. I went back and talked to the individual. I remember when I was being considered to be a senior pastor. And uh, they were really desperate. They'd been looking for maybe three years. And uh, I was 27 years old. And this was a little struggling church in Northern California. And I had been, I, I was a youth pastor. I told you about that last week. I had that real long run of 11 months. It didn't go real well. And I got contacted by this church, and they, um, anyway, I met with them, and, you know, we're going through the whole thing. And it, it and I didn't, hear from a, I didn't hear from them a couple weeks, and well, then they called one night. And, yes, we'd like to take the next step. And I, I thought, this is great. And then the guy said to me, he said, but I'd like to talk with your senior pastor. And I thought, oh, crud. <laughs> because we were kind of at odds. And he wanted me to apologize for a situation, and I, out of principle, wouldn't apologize. But um, I thought, well, this is probably going to kill this deal. He said, could you go ahead and give me his number? Because I'd like to call him tonight, because once we got this settled, we'd like to have you come up and meet with us and make this official. And I thought, you know what? This guy's going to tube the whole thing. And uh, so I gave him the number. And I, my, I gave him the number, and I hung up, and I went like this. And <laughs> I'm not Catholic, but... About an hour later, he calls me back, and he said, well, I talked with him. I said, well, you know, good. And he, he, was, uh, he gave me some stuff, and he said, now he mentioned something about, uh, about your character. 
that you were kind of a loose cannon. You had kind of a temper. I said, me? He said, he mentioned a, a situation that happened in a basketball game about three or four months ago. I said, yeah. He said, can you tell me about that? I said, yeah. I said, well, it was a church basketball, so there's no morality. <laughs> the dirtiest basketball I've ever seen in my life is in church basketball. Would you, would you agree with that? I mean, the Bible was out the window. Anyway, but it was a church. I said, well, yeah, we're playing this team, and I said, I'll tell you, yeah, and I was wrong, but I'll go ahead and tell you what happened. We're playing, and these officials, I mean, uh, we lost this game, and we basically lost the game because they had these two guys that were basically from that church. There was no one else, and they were calling the plays. And it, I mean, it, it was just ridiculous. And so because it's a church league, at the end of the game, we gather around and we pray. And they asked me to pray. And so I did. And part of my prayer, I asked God to forgive the officials for calling such a lousy game. And I did. I mean, I was hacked. And I looked up and I said, in Jesus' name, amen. I looked and all these guys are staring at me. He said, well, he mentioned that. I said, yeah. And then I, I, and then I thought of something. I thought, he wasn't at that game. I said, did he mention how he knew about that? He said, no. I said, well, that was a Saturday night, and the next day was Sunday. And I was asked to give the pastoral prayer. But as I was sitting there, waiting for my part in the service to give the pastoral prayer, I became convicted about what I had done. So when I got up to the podium, I said, before I pray, I've got to ask the forgiveness of the guys who were at the game last night, because here's what I did. I said, that's how he found out about it. He said, no. Do you see the difference? I'm not trying to make myself look good. I'm just saying, none of us, none of us, um, none of us are... Uh, without our problems. None of us are without indictment. Are there things in your life where you know you're wrong? Do you need to go talk to someone? Do you need to go confess something? So see if Mike Wallace comes in, you can say, well, yeah, yeah, that's true. And I tried to make it right. Big difference there, isn't there? He needs to look for some guys that are not without sin, but above reproach. Guys of good reputation. That's the God-fearing men. Now, now he's going to go right into family. Watch this. The husband of one wife. The idea here, uh, Timothy, I want you to find some guys. I want you to find a one-woman man. Polygamy was huge back then. Huge. It was the custom. He had more than one wife. I want you to find a one-woman guy. A one-woman guy. I want you to find a guy that is totally and thoroughly from his heart, from his gut, committed to his wife. That's where we're going to start. The scripture says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife. Shall cleave, the King James says, to his wife. Shall adhere to his wife. She's got 
his full and undivided attention. A one-woman man. That's the kind of guy you look for. So Timothy, if you got a one-woman man, he's not going to be a fantasizer. He's not consistently fantasizing in his mind about other women. Now, maybe he used to, but he's growing in grace. And, and, and he is learning not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed, as Romans 12 says, by the renewing of his mind in Christ Jesus. So a one-woman man is not a fantasizer. A, a one-woman man is not a toucher doesn't touch women inappropriately. You've seen guys that do this. It's not the kind of guys that lead churches. Sometimes it is, but it shouldn't be. Not a flirt. A one-woman man is not a flirt. Oh, we're just kidding around. Well, quit kidding around. Why are you kidding? At that church where I was a youth pastor... This just popped into my head. We're at a staff meeting. And there was, there was this guy on staff and a secretary. And we're always, every time we're at staff meeting, they're kidding around. Every week, they're kidding around about uh, running off to Mexico together. They're kidding around about doing this, about, and they're making these little double entendres. And, and one day, the guy said something, and I looked at him. I said, what do, you, what do you do that? He said, why do I do what? I said, why do you joke about that? He goes, I'm just kidding around. I said, you're an elder. Why do you do that? And you love your wife. Everybody knows you love your wife. How would your wife feel if she were sitting here? It just kind of hacked me off. And in my loving way. <laughs> I mean, it just went on week after week and week. I mean, if I, why, why do you do that? You know, that, that demeans you? I mean, that's not your heart, is it? He goes, no. I said, well, why do you say that? He goes, you know, I don't know. I said, you're a better guy than that. Don't talk like that. I mean, this guy had teenage daughters. And you talk like that at home? Anyway, and you know what? He took it well. I, I got to tell you, the guy, the guy said, you know what? You're absolutely right. And I appreciated that. He was a good guy. He's just fooling around. But there's some things you don't fool around about, right? Marriage is sacred. Marriage is holy. I, 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 where was I? I, was, I had some guys helping me move a bunch of stuff. And anyway, I didn't know this guy. He worked for this other guy. And, we're, and Mary's out there, and then she left, and this guy's saying, yeah, i got to go home to my old lady. This guy's about 23, 24. He says, i got to go home to my old lady. He says, I hate going home. He says, your old lady give you a hard time? I said, I don't have an old lady. i got a wife. What do you mean, old lady? You talking about your wife? Are you married? He goes, yeah. I said, why do you call her an old lady? He said, well, I'm just kidding around. I said, why would you kid around? How old is she? He was 22. I said, she's not an old lady. You're demeaning her. You're putting her down. I don't call my wife an old lady because she's not an old lady. And let me tell you something. If she was 90 years old, I wouldn't call her an old lady because I live with her in an understanding way. He's a young guy. He didn't know any better. He, caught, he heard. He thought that was cute. He thought it was cool. It's not cool. He needed, to find, he needed to find a man who didn't like that and who told him it wasn't good. He was, he was kind, of a, he's kind of a smart mouth. So I just, you know, 
once again in my loving way. Just, and I wasn't all over the kid, but I just, I said, hey, she's not an old lady. That kid needed to meet a man who didn't talk like that about his wife. That's how he was raised. There's a better way, right? Uh, If you're a one-woman man, you're not a pursuer of other women. You don't pursue them at at websites. You don't pursue pursue other women. You're a one-woman man. Well, we could milk that for some more, but you get the idea, don't you? It is a great thing. Hey, a God-fearing man is a one-woman man. It's one woman. You know what's neat to see? It's hard to see, but it's a great thing, is when an older couple um, I think it's great to see when a wife begins to physically break down, when, when a wife uh, gets cancer, when a wife gets Alzheimer's, and you see your husband there, loving her, caring for her, treating her with respect. There's a one-woman man. There's a one-woman man. And we've all seen guys, wife gets sick, wife gets ill, and what do they do? They cut out. Boy, I want to say something, but I'm not going to say it. Because I know a couple of guys that are, I know of a couple of guys that are running for office. And I won't say what office. Okay. Okay. What's the next one? Family. Hey, hey, Titus, look at their life. This guy's going to lead the church. Check out his life. Check out his family life. One woman, man. Having children who believe, not accused of moral laxity, uh, dissipation, or rebellion. These these are obviously kids that are under a father's house. Uh, uh, Timothy says that uh, he must be one who manages his own household well. If you can't manage your own home, you can't. How can you manage the household of God? Now, it doesn't mean that kids don't go under your roof, don't go through things, and kids aren't developing and growing. But but if you've got a kid that's hard-hearted and rebellious and out of control, that man can't be an elder until he. And I've seen guys, to their credit, I've seen guys who are elders who have said, "I am stepping down because where my son or daughter is right now." I need, to, I need to handle this because I don't feel in my heart I'm qualified. Now, there's a God-fearing man for you. God bless him. God bless him. You can't make your kids do it right, what's right, but you don't let them get out of control either without attempting to manage the situation and be connected. You, it, it's common sense, is it not? Now, now watch what he's going to do. In verse 7, now he's going to get into the guy's personal character and personal attitudes and and lifestyle. For the overseer, uh, once again, must be above reproach as God's steward, as God's manager. Uh, Joseph was the steward. He was the manager over Potiphar's estate. And then he was the steward of the jail because 
the, the chief jailer, just as Potiphar promoted Joseph, you remember that? Then the chief jailer promoted Joseph. And there wasn't anything that wasn't under Joseph's charge. And then he became second in command in Egypt. He, he is co-ruler with Pharaoh. So he's a steward. He's managing the resources. Seven years of abundance, he's managing that which doesn't belong to him, and he gives an account. That's the idea that's here. Um, an elder is God's steward. Then he goes on and he says he's not self-willed. He's a, hey, look for a guy that doesn't always have to have it his way. Don't you love guys like that? It's always got to be their way. That's the guy you don't put into leadership in a church. Not quick-tempered. Well, that pretty much finishes most of the guys in this room. Right? You guys remember the cartoon character Quick Draw McGraw? That's who I think of on this. A lot of us are Quick Draw McGraw when it comes to temper. Now, there needs to be growth. There needs to be development. And, 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 and this stuff's not easy. And it's not saying, it, it, it's not saying that, that you never have a problem with it. It's saying that there's a level, there's a level of consistency, there's a level of growth, there's, there's improvement. It's not where it used to be. Now, the, is it perfection? No. No. Some of you guys know Stu Weber, uh, pastor in Oregon, good friend of mine, wrote Tender Warrior. Uh, Stu was a uh, uh, Army Ranger, Green Beret, Vietnam. Great guy. I always, when I introduce Stu, uh, I always say Stu knows 17 different ways to kill you. And he does. But Stu's a very relational guy. Um, very gracious guy. But Stu has a hair trigger temper. And he's one of those guys. And, and you, don't, you don't ever want to set that trigger off. Uh, Stu, his three boys all played basketball. And... Uh, Stu, we were talking one time, and, and, he, and he was saying, you know, Steve, one of the things, and he's written, he wouldn't mind me telling you about this. He said it publicly. Stu's always struggled with his temper. You wouldn't know it to meet him. Just gracious guy laid back, but it's there. It's there. And it would always come out of this kid's basketball game. He, he, we were somewhere speaking, and he said, you know, I am really, I've been working on this. I'm really working on it. I do well, but when my boys are playing and someone takes advantage of them, I can't handle that. He told me he was at a game, and he was up in the stands, and some kid hacked his one boy. And he said, next thing I, do, next thing I knew, Steve, I was standing on the court. He said, I don't know how I got there, but I was standing on the court. And, but he started working on it. And his wife bought him uh, headphones and a little music thing, and he'd listen to Christian music at the games. He was trying. Some of that Christian music would just set me off. <laughs> but he was trying. He's growing. He's not perfect. Okay. Not addicted to wine. Okay. Now, it's okay if you used to be addicted to wine. But not a drunk. Uh, you guys ever heard of Harry Emerson Fosdick? One of the most famous preachers in American history. Uh, 
He was, uh, he was an avowed liberal. He was pastor of Riverside Church in New York City. Um, his his big-time years were in the early 1900s. Uh, in his high school and college years, Fosdick was already developing a reputation as the Jesse James of the theological world. From 1918, But he was a great speaker, incredibly gifted speaker. From 1918 to 1925, Fosdick, though a Baptist, served as minister of First Presbyterian Church in New York because they didn't give a rep because they're liberals, right? So they don't have any doctrinal distinctives. Uh, where his eloquence earned him a reputation, the pressure built as fundamentalists worried aloud about Fosdick's brand of Christianity. Fundam- fundamentalist intellectual J. Gresham Machen asked, the question is not whether Mr. Fosdick is winning men, but whether the thing to which he is winning them is Christianity. Um, you know the term fundamentalism? It comes from the early 1900s when liberals were attacking the Word of God. And one of the key guys attacking was Harry Emerson Fosdick. So the gentleman, you guys ever been on the West Coast, you see Union Oil, the orange and blue signs? Well, the man who owned that company uh, financed uh, evangelical scholars to write a series of uh, volumes called The Fundamentals of Christianity, which answered the liberal attacks. In a May 1922 sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win?, Fosdick replied by repudiating the core beliefs of the fundamentalist faith. Belief in the virgin birth was unnecessary, the inerrancy of Scripture untenable, and the doctrine of the second coming absurd. Though he ended on a note of reconciliation in the sermon, he castigated fundamentalists as bitterly intolerant. Sounds familiar. Baptist oil baron John D. Rockefeller, the wealthiest man in the nation, loved it and paid for some 130,000 copies to be printed and distributed to every Protestant minister in the United States. Interesting. Um, you, you know, I, I, was, I was reading today about another contemporary of Fosdick, because Fosdick was a Cretan basically what he was. I was reading about another man uh, who was, uh, I was reading about a modern-day prophet in the charismatic movement. Uh, His name is Paul Cain. He is very well known. He has an ability. uh, If you walk up to him many times, he can tell you he's never met where you're from, the names of your children, all this kind of stuff. And He's been viewed for years as a prophet. But uh, even on his website, he admits over the last few years that for years and years and years, he's been a drunkard and a practicing homosexual. Isn't that something? And he's confessed it. And he's holding meetings this week in California. I don't think he ought to be holding meetings even if he was doctrinally on top of things, which he isn't. What does this say? I want you to appoint men that are not addicted to wine. He's addicted to wine. Okay. Not pugnacious, that means you don't punch guys out. Maybe you used to, but you don't anymore. You're growing. Uh, Look at this. Not fond of sordid gain. Why is that important? Because the Cretans, you remember, they were were fond of sordid gain. In verse 11, they're teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. In other words, you're not greedy. You don't love money. 
Uh, here's verse 8. But hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Now look at verse 9. This is the doctrinal beliefs of the man. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Uh, elders have to have an understanding of the scriptures. Why? Because they have to be able to exhort, they have to be able to teach, and if there's contradictory doctrine, they have to handle it. And that goes right to verse 10, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. So there's got to be growth. There's got to be development in the life of this man who is an elder so that he can lead the church with integrity, so that he can make a difference. And where does it all start? It starts with being a God-fearing man. A God-fearing man is a man who has the fear of the Lord. But part of having the fear of the Lord is having a love for the Lord. And part of loving the Lord, Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your strength, all your might. Watch this. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Let me finish with this. I, uh, what's the overarching thing when it comes to an elder? He's got to be above reproach. He's got to be a good reputation. I, I had a situation uh, develop uh, last year. I, I had agreed to do three projects with a publisher, and, um, and uh, I was working, and I had agreed because of one particular individual, and we got our first project done, and it went really, really well. And then several months later, after finishing in the first project, this guy who I was really enjoying working with uh, left this Christian publishing house uh, to accept a pastorate. So he was gone. Well, I did the second project. And the second project, because he wasn't there, wasn't really handled all that well. They had had a big turnover in staff and all of that. And it just, it just really didn't go well. Well, I had a third project with him. I got the third project done. I turned it in. Um, Shortly thereafter, I was contacted by another Christian publisher about doing three other projects. Well, I was clear because I'd finished my agreement with these guys. As I outlined the three projects that I wanted to do, I thought to myself, man, that one I just turned in would really go well here. It would really go well. And I was nervous because the second one had not been handled real well, and I was worried about the third one thought about it, and I'm not giving you all the details. I don't need to give you all the details. Well, the guy that I had originally agreed to work with, who had become a pastor, I called him up, and I said, I want to run this by you, because I'm thinking about meeting with the head guy. And here's my concern. I'm really worried about this third project. It's in. It won't be out for a year, but it's in. I'm really worried about it because of this and this and this and this and this, which happened on the second one. He said, I see why you're worried. He said, I think you ought to go meet with him and line it out to him. I said, really? He said, I'd do it. He said, Steve, here's the thing about him. He'll do the right thing. I said, okay. I went and met with him. We talked for about 40 minutes. Good guy. I've known him a long time. And he's running a big outfit. He didn't know all this stuff. And I just said, we had this and this and this. And it was real. I'm really concerned about this one I just handed in. <clears throat> he said, I'd be concerned too. He said, what would you like us to do? 
I said, you know what I'd really like to do? I'm going to do some projects with this other group. This would really fit in well there. And what I'd like to do, what I'd like to do is to get this back and make this the first of these other projects. He said, you know what he said? He said, well, Steve, we just want to do the right thing. Now, they'd paid me. They, I had some advance money on this project. And what we worked out was, these new guys will pay me, and I'll send you a check. He said, that's great. And, you know, it's probably going to be 90 days. He goes, yeah, that's fine. Well, just uh, after Thanksgiving, I get the check, send it off to him, and I get a letter of thanks. I get two emails of thanks. And I mean not just thanks, but thank you for your integrity. Thank you for your sterling character. Thank you. And I thought, what is this? I mean, it was really nice, but it was kind of over the top. Uh, and, and I'm over at Chick-fil-A having my quiet time. Uh, I was. And my cell phone rings. And it's one of the other guys at this publishing house that I've known for quite a while. And he said, hey, Steve, I just wanted to call you and thank you because we just got your letter with the check. And I said, oh, oh yeah, thank you. He goes, he said, here's what he said. He said, we, he said, we like you before. We really like you now. <laughs> and I said, well, thanks. I said, you know, you're the, this is the fourth call. I, or the, you know, I got two emails and a letter, and this is the call. I said, Steve, that's, you don't need to do all this. And, and he said, no. He said, you just have no idea. And I said, well, Steve. He said, Steve, he said, Steve let me give you a context. You know why this is such a big deal? You know why it's such a big deal to Greg, who's the head guy? Because he's been in publishing for 35 years. And he said, you know, I can count on one hand the amount of times I've had a Christian author return to me money that was advanced and owed on deals like this. He said, that's why this is such a big deal. And that kind of shocked me. Because these are pastors that are publishing these are Christian leaders, and, and the contract says, yes, I'll return, and they don't return the money. He said, well, Steve, that's why we wanted to thank you. And I said, well, you know, Steve, one of my goals this year is, has been not to steal money. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, I'm really working on that. It, now, now, you know the point of that story is not to talk about me, is it? The point of that story is to say that we need to watch very carefully that we are not below reproach, but above it. You know why I return that money? Because I don't want God to discipline me. I got that check and I looked at it and I thought, hmm, that was a nice check. I thought, hmm. And I wrote out another check, put it in my account, and FedExed it off to him. Because I want God to bless my life. Wanting to bless my family, wanting to bless my kids, wanting to bless me. And I don't want to be a thief. Neither do you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. This is real basic stuff. But we can so easily slip. We can so easily drift. We don't want to do that. Help us to guard our hearts for 
from it flows the wellspring of life. We want to grow. We want to mature. We want to be God-fearing men. Thank you for forgiving our past. Thank you that Jesus paid it all. But help us to grow in grace. In his name we pray. Amen.